Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, Pastor Michael Yosef looks at a nation adrift. This would have been insanity not long ago. It's insanity now. And so I wrote this book to show the roots of departure from biblical truth. His heart's desire is for God to show his kind hand yet again. We need to be praying for an awakening. Andy Bales of the Union Rescue Mission in Los Angeles presents hope for the homeless. We believe people can make a comeback to the power of Jesus Christ. Plus, in the world after Roe, the pro-life community faces new challenges. They're calling it abortion tourism. And the never more important message of adoption. There's less than 20,000 kids a year adopted. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We begin with a look at the state of our nation. These days, to say things are changing quickly is an understatement, a bit trite, even glib. We're witnessing profound changes unfolding at near lightning speed. It seems like each day we're greeted with news of some social or moral norm that's been jettisoned or declared obsolete. What we once shared in common, what we all agreed upon, is now a source of division or worse, hatred. Hope for this present crisis is what Dr. Michael Youssef is trying to reintroduce. He's also the host of the Leading the Way radio program. Dr. Youssef was a guest of Tim DeMoss on WFIL AM 560 in Philadelphia. Share a bit about you know, what led you to write this in the first place and what your hopes for it are. Well, you know, would you believe my 15-year-old grandson said to me, said, Papa, the world is going crazy. I thought that was really interesting from a young perspective, yeah. a young man who loves the Lord. And, and he just said, the world is going crazy. And he's exactly right. The world is going crazy. And yet in his short life, but just think of our age and, you know, that we lived a little longer and been around and we saw the world somewhat sane. Now they've lost all sanity. And all the stuff that's going on, just a, a local church half a mile from us has a children program uh, last Sunday night night with drag queens leading the service, the, the singing and, and the preaching. I mean, just think about this. This would have been insanity not long ago. It's insanity now. And this is going on all across the board. And so I wrote this book to show the roots of departure from biblical truth. And that's what got us in this trouble. And that is why each I go through them. education, even the church, because that's a very important component. Yeah. And, the, and the whole social movement and, and so forth. So these are the areas in which our world is going nuts. And what's the answer? What's the word? What does the word of God say? And so I present solutions to all the problems that we are seeing today. Yeah. Uh, early on in the um, introduction, you talk about the crisis is the decline of the influence of the Christian church, a decline of faith, truth, and morality. It is a hollowing out of our society from within. And some yeah. Muslim leaders you'd spoken with, how America will actually hand itself over, so to speak, rather than being taken by force because of where our values are, but that decline's not inevitable, which is a really important message through this book, that there is hope. It is not a hopeless situation. 
No. And when you think about times in the past, and it happened twice in America, where morality has gone down into the gutter and things really got so bad. The first one, of course, when God raised Jonathan Edwards and, and it became uh, the first great awakening. And then in 1857, it was a time. It was so bad. The Depression was worse than the 1920s. And there was run on the banks and things were really bad. And then Jeremiah Lamphy, a businessman, a, a layman, and he wasn't a preacher. He just started a prayer meeting and soon swept across the nation and brought us a second great awakening. And so there is hope unless the Lord returns, which we all, of course, would love to see. But if he is not, this is not his time yet, then we need to be praying for an awakening that God will give us a third great awakening and that he would transform all this craziness and madness that has really taken place to repentance. That's what we want to see. We don't want to destroy our enemy. We want them to repent and come to the Lord and believe in Him and share with us in the eternal joy of knowing the Savior and be with Him for all of eternity. So that's really the longing of my heart at 75. And I am, as, as, as a friend of mine says, Piddle to the metal, he said, because I said, look, I said, let me tell you why. I am now able to see the finishing line. So I'm sprinting. I'm not, this is a marathon, but I've been, I've been taking time. Now it's a sprinting time hmm. because whatever years he's got for me, left for me, I want to be absolutely making everything possible, doing everything possible to see that men and women come to Christ and believe in him so that I can take a million souls with me when I go to heaven. Amen. So yeah. it's very important. Pastors, I want to implore you in the name of Jesus, do not compromise. Don't be afraid because God is the one who brought you here. God is the one who called you. God is the one who will sustain you. God is the one who's going to provide for you, not your church, not your board, not your congregation. God is the one who's going to. So stand strong in the Word of God, proclaiming the Word of God. Say, thus says the Lord, and God will protect you. That doesn't mean they'll be rude or arrogant. No, we do speak the truth in love. In fact, I am known as a weeping preacher because there are many times when I'm preaching, I just find myself weeping over the lost people and and, and hell. And and so uh, it is out of love that we preach the truth, not out of anger or hate or any of this stuff. No, 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 no. It is because we love them that we want them to come and go to heaven with us. If sin is taking a toll on our nation, and we know that it is, one of the key manifestations of that sin is homelessness. And Southern California is amongst the worst, with some 75,000 unsheltered in L.A. County alone. Andy Bales is the CEO of Union Rescue Mission in downtown Los Angeles. He was a recent guest of Scott Furrow on KKLA in Los Angeles. How is it going with the mayor and her plan now to, to help people? I think it's going well. It's like a dream come true uh, today, commenting on the fact that she said we're going to immediately get everyone off the streets, which is something we've been calling for for uh, decades. Right. And uh, we can do it. We just can't continue to think that helping people into very expensive, slow-to-develop units for a few are going to help uh, when the many are dying and suffering on the streets. And so – I'm all for it, and I believe she can do it. What I do have to say is all of that housing that's been done so far is uh, is both the LASA and its partners and the Mayor's Inside Safe program, 
about 14,000 people have been put into interim housing or, or housing. But uh, we still in L.A. are having more people fall into homelessness mm. than are getting out of it. So we need to double down. We need to help the mayor double down on all of her efforts. And we need to keep the activists who keep pushing for housing first only. Uh, that's what happened in California. Yeah. Uh, California is the only state that doubled down on housing first and harm reduction only. Meanwhile, street homelessness skyrocketed. So we 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 lost transitional housing. We we lost recovery. We need to get it back. We need to focus on recovery. And our mayor has told me that she believes not only in recovery but faith based recovery. And I was assured that Inside Safe would bring recovery services, uh, mental health services, case management. This time, because we got debriefed and we know it didn't work the first round with Project Room Key, but mm-hmm. that has yet to show up, Pastor Scott, as yep. it waits on the mayor's new budget and state funds. And it's just whether our federal government or our state government will allow for some recovery services. And I went all the way to Washington, D.C. and spoke up with Representative Andy Barr and others and said, we need housing plus where some of the money goes to housing that includes recovery and sobriety and supportive services, now, wraparound are th- services. Are there some large cities, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, there are large cities like New York that actually has more homeless people except they're able to house most of them. Is that correct? Yes. New York is a better model than L.A., though L.A. officials try to say it isn't. They only leave 3,400, about 4 to 5 percent of the people devastated by homelessness on the streets with a vast array of interim housing network. And uh, we leave 70% on the streets. It's incredible how many people we leave on the streets. No other metro area comes close. Not Houston, not Miami, not New York, not Boston, no one. I think people need to recognize that because we're not saying that New York is perfect or that they aren't dealing with some of the same philosophical issues. But the idea that they don't have so many people on the street says that we are capable of doing something if we change how we're doing it, like you said. Absolutely. New York has two rules. One is if you need a place to go, there's a law that says you have to get one. And there's also a law that says if it's 32 degrees or below, you have to come in. You're forced to come in to save your life. The equivalent of that in L.A. is 40 degrees in rain. We know People die in L.A. Mm -hmm. if it's 40 degrees and rain, like those atmospheric rivers that we didn't prepare for last round. Uh, But more people die of hypothermia in L.A. than New York and San Francisco combined because of the sheer numbers we are leaving on the streets. Who can continue to live with that status quo? Our Bible, the Bible I read, says that we are to welcome them as, as a Union Rescue Mission Christian organization. I'm only arguing uh, Christianity right now, not politics. Right. But as as a mission, we don't decide on uh, who deserves help and who doesn't. We welcome everybody who comes to our door with the compassion of Christ, and that's what we're going to keep doing at Union Rescue Mission. And what do we find that's different at Union Rescue Mission, and as well as some other Christian missions uh, in the Southland who are working very hard? What is the the biggest difference that you can share with people? We believe people can make a comeback through the power of Jesus Christ. And no matter what amount of money is offered by the federal government, if it causes us to lose the power of Jesus Christ to transform lives, 
it's uh, out of reach because why would we trade the power of Christ for any amount of money? And that's what's different about Christian organizations. We also embrace people with the compassion of Christ, and that's why every one of our satellites is over capacity, Scott, because people want to come in where it's safe and sober and peaceful. And you have great stories. Your radio program on KKLA is called Amazing Stories from Skid Row. And I would encourage everybody to uh, check that out. Amazing Stories from Skid Row. You have amazing stories because uh, you have stories of recovery. Absolutely. Power of Christ to transform lives. And 25% of our staff are former guests who had their lives transformed and are helping others now. And that's why we believe in recovery and, and bounce backs and miracle turnarounds because of uh, Jesus Christ. Without him, uh, we couldn't do anything. Coming up, the challenges coming after Roe. They're calling it abortion tourism. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company. Like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder. Just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The reversal of Roe versus Wade has to be one of the greatest legal victories in my adult life. I began my career doing pro-life work to champion the sanctity of life and in hope that one day I'd see Roe versus Wade overturned. After nearly four decades, what I imagined impossible has come to pass, the fall of Roe. And these days following the court's decision in Dobbs, we've seen another facet of the dark side of the pro-abortion movement, targeting conservative Supreme Court justices and their families while threatening, disrupting, and destroying pregnancy resource centers and states that are trying to set themselves up as havens for abortion, making them available at any time and for any reason. California would be at the top of that list, and regrettably, I have to include my home state of Oregon as well. Craig Roberts turned to Valerie Hill, the CEO of Real Options, from KFAX in San Francisco. We celebrate in the decision by the high court, but that also means for organizations like yours... If it wasn't busy before, it's about to get a whole lot more complicated. You are right. That is uh, exactly what we're hoping we can do is intercept and serve uh, many, many more women uh, as California leans into 
providing not only abortions for the women that live here, but the travel expenses, as you said, and um, they're calling it abortion tourism, trying to lure women to come to California for chemical or uh, procedural abortions. Talk to us a bit about this and uh, ways in which it's a real critical time, Valerie, for all of us to be standing with organizations like Real Options, uh, literally standing in the gap at this point. It's time to be the church. It's time to be the hands and feet of Christ and show compassion and provide excellent services and support and compassion to women and men facing unplanned pregnancies because... Uh, We care about parents. We care about both parents. And and we care about the most innocent, the most vulnerable among us are the pre-born children and uh, their little lives hanging in the balance. While these moms and dads, if they're not finding good information, it's in California the end of their lives. So we want to provide everything we possibly can to everyone that needs our services and those women that maybe have taken the chemical abortion pill. I know California's even talked about putting it in the pharmacy. Uh, It's over the counter. It's not plan B. This is not plan B. This is the chemical abortion. Valerie, if, if Californians are ultimately having to pay for abortions for everybody, includes those coming out of state, then where does the funding come from for organizations like yours that can give women information and true opportunities at choice, quote unquote? Most of our support comes from people like me and you, Craig, individuals who care about life, who care about women, men and students and preborn babies. And so they invest by giving into our 501c3 at Real Options. And we appreciate the generosity of the people that support us. So there's a lot you can do to safeguard lives and save lives, as well as serving women who find themselves in desperate, life-altering decisions so that we can be there for them, we can be the safety net. And that's how the church rises up um, to partner with us. The end of Roe provides an opportunity for Christians and all who respect the sanctity of life to renew our efforts and advocacy for adoption. That's what John Knox has been doing for several years. He's the founder of the Opt Institute, and he was a guest of Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk, WTBN in Tampa. First of all, tell us a little bit about the great work of the Institute and uh, the background, and then give us a little idea about diving into the findings here. The Opt Institute is part of a nonprofit called Adoption is an Option. And I was adopted. And so when I was traveling around, I kept seeing the signs of it's a woman's right to choose. And I kept thinking it might legally be a woman's right to choose, but adoption is an option. And that's kind of where that came from. And so I got involved and started learning about what's going on with private infant adoption and learned that that there's less than 20,000 kids a year adopted. Back when I was adopted in the 50s, there were hundreds of thousands of adoptions that took place. But private infant adoption has uh, all but disappeared. Most of the adoption takes place is after they've been taken over and put into the foster care system and then adopted out. It's very difficult to to adopt an infant today. And so that's where I started getting involved in that. And then we formed the Opt Institute that 
looked at doing research, and it's done three major research projects to try and find out what the uh, real truth is. And that's where the report that you were referring to came from that was done by George Barna. What really influences this decision of an unplanned pregnancy, of of adoption, not adoption, raising the child? How do women come to this decision? We learned a lot through the research. It's not surprising that family has the biggest influence on the decision that's made. But I thought family, friends, the Internet would be big influencers. The The second largest influence by far was the medical community, doctors and nurses. And I, I would not have thought that. You know, the cost to adopt a child in just the marketplace, and, and I, I don't mean to be harsh, but in some instances, it's like big business. I mean, it could be twenty five, forty thousand dollars $40,000 or more to adopt. Doesn't that play into this? Not only the women making this decision, but uh, I know there's always adoptive parents, but we could have a lot more if the price wasn't so high. And if we had a bigger supply, the price wouldn't be so high. That's exactly, you're hitting on a, on a great point, Bill, and it's way too expensive. There are 700,000 families that would like to adopt. And when you only have 20,000 placed in a year, You've got adoption agencies that have waiting lists that are, I mean, they're 40 to 1 in terms of the amount of people you have wanting to adopt versus what's available. If more women were willing to place a child for adoption, that cost basis would come down significantly. What's happening is is too many of them are, are not placing for adoption. A lot of those are ending up in the foster care system. One of the ways that, that we could reduce the amount of kids that end up in the foster care system is if more women placed at birth, it would uh, greatly improve the scenario in the foster care side. Let's talk about the churches. We have some churches, they are all in. A lot of churches don't want to get involved. It's not just some churches. I mean, it, it most churches, the vast majority, the churches today don't want, so many of them don't even want to talk about the, the abortion issue. It's, it's too politically divisive for them. They don't want it. They don't want to get into the political issues of dealing with abortion. But even if they don't go down that road, adoption was a wonderful area for them to talk about. Uh, I was so lucky that I got to be adopted twice. So I was, I've been adopted into God's family, and I got adopted at birth. So many birth mothers think that if they place a child for adoption, they're going to come back later and hate them or not like them or be unhappy that they've been placed for adoption. And my experience has been the exact opposite. I didn't meet my birth mother until I was almost 40 years old. Mm-hmm. But nearly everybody I know has great admiration for their birth mother. So we started a campaign called I Am That Kid. And that's where we're continuing to tell stories about people that have been adopted. Coming up... What would it look like to actually conserve something? Rediscovering conservatism when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, 
you will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. The radical and even revolutionary agenda being promoted in our nation has forced a lot of people to wake up. But as we push back, we should be aware of a movement on the right that isn't necessarily conservative. Our next guest has made the case for a grounded conservatism in his book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. Yarom Hazoni, an Orthodox Jew, joined our friend Albert Moeller, an evangelical Christian, on his podcast, Thinking in Public. Why this particular book at this time? Well, I've been involved with uh, conservative things most of my adult life. I mean, since I was in college, even a little bit before. And I have this feeling that in a lot of ways, times have become more desperate than they've ever been on the one hand. And on the other hand, the clarity of the conservative message, I think, has faded to the point that it's very uncertain how are conservatives supposed to offer aid and assistance in very, very difficult times, you know, both in the United States and in, in other democratic countries in, in Europe and elsewhere. And one thing that I know that especially the younger people who have some kind of an, an impulse in the direction of conservatism or the right more broadly, I think that one thing we hear from them all the time is what is conservatism ever conserved? It, it's not intended to be a hostile uh, remark, although some, you know, sometimes it sounds like that. I, I, I think it's a genuine question. If we, you know, uh, look at the last couple of generations and we we see the, the the way in which Western nations have abandoned God and Scripture, uh, but also family and uh, loyalty to to the nation, to the independence of nations. At, at this point, man and woman honor and sanctity. I mean, the Sabbath, you can just go on and on. I think it's completely reasonable to ask, what is conservatism conserved? And the purpose of this this book, you know, rather than uh, being an apology for, you know, how great conservatism uh, has been in recent years, what what I try to do is is to ask what I think is the, the necessary question. What What would it look like to actually conserve something? to actually construct a society and, in fact, uh, individual personal lives that would be capable of conserving things. And I want to ask, what happened that led you to believe this book really needed to enter the public conversation at this time? I, I think you're describing it all correctly. I mean, I, my first book is already 20 years old. It was called uh, The Jewish State, The Struggle for Israel's Soul. And at that time, America looked really sturdy, and 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 Europe looked okay too, and in a lot of ways. And uh, the state of Israel, which is, you know, I, I I live with my wife and kids in Jerusalem, and that's where we make our home. And uh, the state of Israel seemed like it was on on the edge. And the question that I addressed in that first book was, where have all the traditions gone? You know, there there was this. Uh, new liberalism that was uh, making life in Israel, to my mind, uh, uh, unrecognizable and dangerously so. Uh, so th that's actually where I, I began the conversation. And it, 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 it's a little strange, but now 20 years later, it feels as though those same issues which were so troubling about Israel have overtaken America. And, you know, obviously, Israel is a small country. It's very different from the United States in a lot of ways. But at the same time, there is something that uh, that unites 
all of the, the Western democracies, all, all, all of the, uh, the the nations that have, in one way or another, um, come out of this 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 great Anglo-American tradition of of uh, biblical religion and nationalism, and we all are facing a common opponent that is mutating and getting, you know, more difficult to handle uh, with every passing year. Um, I think that we can say that in 2020, I think it's fair to say that in 2020, 2020 was a watershed, and it might have been a watershed even without the coronavirus. The the main reason 2020 was a watershed is because the uh, hegemony of liberal ideas, the uh, political conditions in which you could count on most people of the left and the right to agree on certain basic liberal premises, which which had been agreed upon, you know, basically since World War II, that came to an end in 2020. I, I mean, I'm not the, the liberalism is still a very powerful framework, but I think realistically it is being severely challenged and successfully from from the left by by this kind of neo-Marxist wokeism, and I also think that many non-liberal views, some of them are, are I think, are, are positive and some of them are positively awful, uh, are also appearing on the right. And in a way, everything is up for grabs now. The, the traditions have really been worn down to the point that almost anything can happen. And uh, I, so I felt, you know, this is just, the, you know, it's the last moment to be able to write this book and, to, and publish it and, and feel like I, I put out there what I have to say. Coming up, it's two generations after God and Bible were asked to remove themselves from the American public schools, and people can't tell the difference between a man and a woman anymore. More on conservatism, a rediscovery, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. In his new book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, Yarom Hazoni has done some significant work on what it means to be a conservative, including making the necessary distinction between a conservative and a classical liberal, a label that's often used to refer to our nation with an emphasis on individual freedom and liberty. Let's continue with more of the conversation with Yarom Hazoni, the guest of Albert Moeller, on his Thinking in Public podcast. I, I want to come back to two arguments made in your book. You go at the fact that uh, the conservatism and classical liberalism are not the same thing. And that this is a confusing issue. It was very confusing to me as a teenager. I could understand the claims of classical liberty. But by the time you got even to the Reagan years, there were people saying, you know, we're, we're the true liberals. I mean, even Reagan played with that a little bit himself, having been a liberal Democrat at one point. We're the true liberals. You know, th this classic liberal tradition. And uh, one of the things I most appreciate about your uh, your indictment is that you go right at John Locke. In terms of Locke's understanding that the only binding relationships on earth are those of consent, I mean, th that destroys civilization. It, it, it doesn't further it. 
Yep. Again, I think I think there's a lot of people who who just get upset because you're just not supposed to criticize uh, Locke. There's it's an it's an image of the American founding that was born in the 1940s, 1950s, which says this isn't a nation with traditions many centuries old. It's an idea that was invented by brilliant people during the Enlightenment, meaning to say, you know, it. it, in the right. 1700s, human beings, for the first time in history, figured out, you know, the great truths that are universally true. Before then, it was all basically darkness. And so that picture turns Locke and, and, and Kant and Spinoza and, and, and Rousseau's on the social con- contract. It turns, you'll think I'm exaggerating, it actually turns these books into a new scripture. And the books are, are used in schools, you know, of course, in schools where, where Bible and God are, are no longer taught, these books are used in high schools, in universities, uh, to advance a new religion, which has no, no need for scripture and no need for tradition and no need for God. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that that was John Locke's goal. That would be a preposterous thing to say. You know, again, I, I think Locke has a place, is a place in the American founding and the Anglo-American tradition. But you can't turn him into a prophet. You can't turn his view of reason into God himself or into God's word. That's a step that is, it's not just too far. It it, it puts an end to the entire tradition. And I, I think we we don't have any choice but respectfully to resist this. And in a Lockean sense, you know, uh, uh, if, if everything comes down to consent, and uh, the consent of the governed, uh, which means not just the government, but I think in the larger sense, c- consent to the culture, then we're just going to have to figure out how we can give enough consent to, to, to try to bring out the better thing. So j- just to, to, I mean, you you and I both know people who claim the conservative mantle, who made the argument that we should a- adopt and endorse same-sex marriage, because after all, uh, marriage is a conserving institution, and the liberation of sexual impulses is a given now. So all, all we need to do is and must do or can do is to to try to restrain that within certain bounds. I think both of us would agree. Marriage can't be anything other than the union of a man and a woman. Yes, yeah, certainly. It, 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 and and consent to that it could be something else actually won't make it something else. You know, I, th- I think an awful lot of people that used to be called conservative are now just living in an intellectually uh, foolish dream. You know, this issue of consent it's already taken up by Selden and Hale and other. I mean, we're talking about you know many centuries ago uh, that uh, that that great English Protestant statesmen took up the question of can our society really be based on consent? And their argument was that if the only thing that's holding together our society is consent, then you you also have to say that when you stop consenting then the force of those obligations stops. I think that argument was being made at the very dawn of liberalism by conservatives. And I don't think it's ever been responded to. There has to be something other than the consenting individual. If, if it's only the consenting individual, then you've turned the consenting individual into God. He, he alone decides what obliges him. The theory of consent is taught as though it's a theory of moral obligation, but it's not. It's a theory of the freedom from moral obligation. Right. And and if you extend that beyond the individual and you say the consent, say, of groups or societies, uh, uh, again, consent can only get you so far. Because, again, you can consent to the fact 
that people are pregnant, but that doesn't make people pregnant. And yeah. so, you know, I, I see these toxins release, especially among younger Americans or younger people in the Western world. They're, they're fed this ideology of liberation in which consent is, whether it's sex or for that matter, anything else or government, that's all that matters. But, you know, they can get together and consent to whatever they may choose that doesn't change reality. Yep. You know, reality, as I understand it, it's not only about what objects there are, it's also about what obligations you have. There are versions of this argument that try to avoid God. You you hear this in academia that, you know, well, we have the natural law and it obligates us. So, you know, the beauty of it is you don't really need God. And I really think that's a mistake. It's a mistake because, again, this is going back to this issue of, you know, how smart are we? I think we just need more humility about our ability to figure it all out. The place that God plays in sort of the economy of a religious person's thoughts is that whenever you have a principle that you're tempted to say, wow, I know this for absolute certain, I can just rule the world on the basis of this principle because it's so obviously true, a religious person bumps into God and feels, you know, I'm just going too far. I just can't know that much. There's a point at which I have to say that there are things that are beyond me. And God in the scriptural tradition, people talk about the guide rails are coming off. And the reason the guide rails are coming off is because those guide rails were the tradition of common sense that we inherited through thousands of years of studying scripture and placing ourselves in a humble relationship with the God of scripture. And you can't just do without it. I mean, here we are. It's two generations after God and Bible were asked to remove themselves from the American public schools, and people can't tell the difference between a man and a woman anymore. You have to think about that. I mean, people are using reason. You can't say they're not reasoning. You know, all these professors writing these theories, they they have reason coming out of their ears. The problem is not that they're not reasoning. The problem is that their reason is is detached from any kind of humility about the demands of reality, as you say, but also about the demands of a God who, who knows a thing or two that we don't know. Coming up, what are we conserving? The real test of whether you're a conservative is if you're a conservative person. A few more minutes with Jerome Hazoni when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. For more than a century, AM radio has evolved to meet the needs of our community. In their car, at home, or on the job, more than 80 million listeners depend on AM radio each month. AM radio is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, which keeps us safe in dangerous times. It's reliable, free, and public safety depends on it. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we consider the book Conservatism, a Rediscovery, and Jerome Hazoni's efforts to renew our understanding of a grounded conservatism, the obvious question is, what am I conserving? And am I playing a part in conserving what is right and good? Well, let's pick up with more of the conversation between Albert Moeller and Jerome Hazoni. The bravest argument you make in your book is not the argument for nationalism. It is not the argument for the Anglo-American conservative uh, tradition. The bravest argument you make in your book is one that I have not seen anyone make in decades, and that is that conservatism requires conservative lives. I'd really invite you to spell that out just a bit. 
Well, another part of the liberal framework is this idea that government is one thing and individuals, private individuals are another thing, and there's no connection between them. That that just isn't true. Government and society are completely intertwined. There is no way to separate them. And what that means is that you know, we have a whole generation of very well-meaning conservative activists who think that if they stand up for, I don't know, let's say uh, uh, pro-family policies or uh, oppose abortion, I mean, th- th- I'm not, th- these are obviously important things, but they think that if they're, if they're speaking on the right side and if they're you know, holding the right signs, then they're conservatives. But there is no separation between public life and private life. The real test of whether you're a conservative is if you're a conservative person, if you're leaving a conservative life. Either you are plugged into a society, at this point it, it, it's usually an, you know, an Orthodox uh, Christian congregation or Orthodox Jewish congregation, it, either you're plugged into the chain of transmission so that older people who are handing down things, genuine things from the past that they know about are there to teach you. Either you're you're there and receiving it, or you're not actually a conservative. You're a, a liberal with some conservative opinions. And I think that the argument about what public policy needs to be, it has, has to happen. But the real argument, the real decisive place where the future of, of American Western democracy is going to be decided is when these young people in their 30s who want to save their country, their, their their tradition, but are living completely liberal lives. You know, they, they just keep putting off getting married. And they get, keep putting off having children. And, uh, you know, it, serving in the military is, you know, is, is just too much of a burden. And, you know, they would feel like complete uh, jokers if they, you know, if they actually opened the Bible and studied it. All of this, it, it has a huge, huge impact a person who is not plugged into the tradition, not part of the chain of transmission, doesn't really know what a conservative is. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to the ChristianOutlook.com. Encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pouchon, Tim Grantner, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook.